At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, our man on voting rights and voter suppression, Ari Berman. Ari will talk about the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party in their preparations for Trump attempting to steal the election and about recent Supreme Court decisions on voting rights cases. But first, how sick is Donald Trump now that he's left the hospital? White House reporters are doing their best to find out, but the simple answer is we don't know. We do know Trump thought he would never get the virus. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the recent recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The LA Times, and at TheAtlantic.com. And she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Trump left the hospital Monday night and said, quote, don't be afraid of COVID-19. Are you afraid of COVID-19? Of course I'm afraid of COVID-19. It's killed people I know. It's a very dangerous disease. It's a, the idea that he would come out of this. You know, I thought he would learn a little bit something by having his lungs under attack. Like he's under attack now from the inside as well as he thinks from the outside. And But he has learned nothing. The man is impenetrable. Well, you know, he seems... Not just, not only impenetrable, he seems almost triumphant that he came home and went up on the balcony. Uh, it's sort of consistent with his personality, but I think there might be more to it. Well, I think there might be maybe some medical reasons why he's feeling this uh, incredible power and confidence. You see it in people who take methamphetamines. They feel that way. And he's on uh, steroids and he's on uh, all sorts of drugs, things maybe we don't even know about that are making him feel and perhaps even psychologically making him believe that he's doing really well. He said, uh, feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Now, first of all, if Trump is praising knowledge, you know something's wrong because he's never spoken <laughs> kindly about science, knowledge, or truth before. And then you see him up there, you know, 
I was concerned because uh, the Mayo Clinic website says about steroids side effects, and one of the drugs he's on is this, is a very strong steroid. Psychiatric adverse effects during systemic corticosteroid therapy are common, although disturbances of mood, cognition, sleep, and behavior, as well as frank delirium or even psychosis are possible. The most common adverse effects of short-term corticosteroid therapy are euphoria and hypomania. I mean, it sounds almost like steroids are a prescription for just becoming Donald Trump. Normal, <laughs> right. but, normal but, thought. But imagine Donald Trump on these drugs. I mean, yeah. it's a recipe for <laughs> euphoria for him and disaster for us. Let's get personal for uh, a minute uh, here. The rest of us have not lived like Trump since February. We have worn masks. We have stayed home. What's the riskiest thing that you've done since March? Have you invited hundreds of people to a political event in your backyard? Oh, we are always staging side-by-side -side <laughs> anti-Trump rallies inside the dining room for 200. <laughs> no, of course not. I haven't had anyone in my house since the, uh, the COVID pandemic began. And I've had some people, I've had a couple and once for a birthday party, two couples for dinner at social distancing uh, distances and more. And uh, the riskiest thing I did, and it sounds very patriotic, but was to pick up my son at the LAX International Airport. He was coming from New York, COVID hotspot in July, on the 4th of July. And I picked him up because I didn't want him then to get into a, an Uber and get more COVID. And uh, he sat catty corner to me at the farthest end of the car from the driver's seat. And we put down all the windows and we both wore our masks and we drove through the fireworks over the highway. Uh, freeway, excuse me, it's California. And, um, you know, that was the riskiest thing I did. And he had been tested before and he was tested after. And and I was nervous and he was nervous, but, but we did that. And that was risky, but there were personal reasons to do it. And at least we didn't put anyone else in danger, only each other. Of course, lots of people have been complaining for months that Trump has not been taking the COVID-19 pandemic seriously and that his conduct has caused many thousands of needless deaths. But, but here's what confuses me. Trump is also a notorious germaphobe. He won't be in the same room with a person who coughs or sneezes. He never likes shaking hands with people. So how do you explain his cavalier attitude about protecting himself from COVID-19 over the last few months? I think there are several things at work. First of all, he has a sense of self that is invulnerable. So he thinks of himself as beyond this particular thing. He probably believes a little bit that maybe it's not really true. The COVID virus doesn't really exist. It's a plot against Donald Trump, you know, all that stuff. And then I think um, he feels that the White House protocols can protect him, even though he doesn't wear a mask. So he thought that if you just test people enough, he would be protected. But clearly that was not the case. And beyond that, uh, he has an ubermensch complex. So I think that the presidency has led him to feel less like a germaphobe and more like a germo conqueror. <laughs> It's hard to explain his reasoning. I think part of it is also hypermasculinity, the display of hypermasculinity. So although he's 
a bit of a chicken in private and doesn't, you know, like Ringo Starr doesn't like to touch people and does only elbow bumps and stuff like that, even in normal life in front of the American public who want to vote for him because he drives a pickup truck, you know, because of their, all their fantasies about what he is, which is not true. Um, he's a spoiled little brat from Queens. He wants to appear like the Marlboro Man, and you can't look like the Marlboro Man with a mask on, uh, shying away from people. You have to, like, masculinely approach them. And so he he's done that, and, and uh, this is what happens when you behave in those ways. And he has also polarized this so that it's the Democrats, the wimpy Democrats, the feminine wimpy Democrats, who wear masks as a sign of their fear and their subordination. and Terror, yes, their terror of this thing, which can't hurt you if you're a real man. So, I mean, he has to do what he's doing in a way because he set up the scenario for himself. And when you saw him go onto the White House balcony with his usual puffed up chest, and then he didn't know what to do because the photo op was taking too long and he was uncomfortable and you could see it. And he was his pasty orange color at its worst, almost like more than a tanning uh, light, but uh, actual makeup. And he was trying to fix his jacket and he was doing all this stuff. And then he didn't seem quite able to properly breathe. And I think you could see that if you looked at it closely enough. The first time I saw it, it passed me by. I just thought, oh, this guy is so ridiculous. He's so puffed up with himself. And then I watched him more closely and I could see that he was like a little bit heaving for, for breath. And that's yeah. just not a good sign. A person like that shouldn't be out of the hospital. A person who has to go to the hospital for COVID-19, which many people can't even do and aren't even admitted because they're not sick enough. He was sick enough to go to the hospital, even though we know he didn't want to. A person who's admitted for COVID-19 to the hospital doesn't go home two days later or maybe 72 hours later, as his doctors would say. They don't do it. And his doctors have not given us a sense that we should be really confident about his health, even though he's going home. They haven't been able to really respond because they're walking a fine line between making the president feel okay about his medical behaviors and really feeling medically professional about what's happening with the president. I think one of the most interesting things I heard, because I've dealt with people who are sick with cancers and, and things like that, is how the uh, his own doctor, Dr. Conley, I think is his name, was uh, speaking in the first days on television to all these reporters. So he was speaking to the American public. But at the same time, his patient was watching him. That doesn't happen usually. Usually the doctor comes out and tells the family exactly what the heck is going on. And then the doctor goes in and kind of apple polishes and, and rosy ups the, the diagnosis for the patient, him or herself. But in this case, he had to speak to the patient at the same time he was speaking to the American public. So he was lying all over the place and you could really feel it. Plus the president is his boss at the same time. He's not just his patient. But all presidents have tried to keep their health problems a secret. We know now JFK had Addison's, Woodrow Wilson got the Spanish flu at Versailles, FDR was dying when he went to Yalta. Is Trump really any different? Of course, Trump has a lot of presidential behaviors exactly in those terms, about personal stuff 
but he's a more grandiose personality than even those people, although every president becomes grandiose in some ways. But he has a natural grandiosity about him that makes his hiding things bigger. It's just part of his personality. But the other thing is, no one was going to catch Addison's disease from JFK. And JFK could do his job with Addison's disease, although it was hard uh, during the bouts of the disease, painful. And Roosevelt clearly could do his job, although he was ill. The only one I would say was problematic is Ronald Reagan, who had Alzheimer's while he was president. And, you know, that kind of thing is not Warren Harding, too, I believe, had a situation with a stroke or something like that. But the thing is, no one was going to catch any of these things from the president. This is a disease that is afflicting Americans nationwide. 209,000 people have died so far. The president is in charge of dealing with the disease for all of America. And he has failed miserably at helping to control this disease. Every time his administration is confronted with a way that they could move forward, they haven't done it. And now he actually has it. And he's even in denial when he can't breathe on the White House balcony. I mean, it is a phenomenal denial of reality. And basically, you can only deny reality so far. As we all know, we're all going to die. And even Donald Trump, don't tell him, is going to die one day. And yet he has this fatal, possibly fatal disease that he's refusing to acknowledge its power. He's more powerful than COVID, according to him. And I believe that has affected his attitude toward the disease the entire time. You know, nobody really believes that his doctors are telling the truth. And there is this battle going on between the Washington press corps and the doctors and the White House press operation where our friends in the media are working overtime to trying to find out what's really going on, what are his real symptoms, can we see his chest x-ray, which they're refusing to release, that must mean it's bad. But I've been struck by the fact that the press hasn't really been very successful at getting real inside information. Most information, mostly what they do is they interview doctors who are not part of the team, outside doctors, to talk about what they think is going on, how they would treat their patients who were in this situation. And that's really nowhere near as good as getting solid leaks from inside. Right, but no president wants his insides shown to the public. That's just true. And neither do I want mine, nor does John want his, to be honest. So that's an understandable privacy issue. However, this is a man with, ostensibly, his finger on the nuclear button. He has to be able to rise to every occasion. He obviously should have put Mike Pence in charge while he was in the hospital. You know, he's sitting at that little desk that they have for him at Walter Reed did not impress anyone very much. He's not working anyway at his desk in the White House. So the little desk at Walter Reed with a blank piece of paper that he was doodling on with his Sharpie. I mean, really, folks, come on. <laughs> Watchers back home, just check out the paper that was on the desk at Walter Reed. That's not work as we know it. You know, the real sign that he was feeling good enough to go back to his normal routine would be if he was tweeting at the same pace that he usually tweets, 6, 10, 20 tweets a day. 
And it's interesting that he was not tweeting at that rate. He was tweeting hardly at all. And some doctors, outside observers, said, for Trump, this is one of the vital signs. That's the sign of life. Like if you kidnapped President (laughs) Trump, the thing you would do is to show he was still alive was to have him tweet in real time. He's tweeting now, however. So maybe he's feeling better or maybe someone else is writing his tweets because they realize. And basically, I think almost any American today could write Donald Trump's tweets for him at this point. We've learned the language. There also is the mania and the euphoria that you pointed out is a well-known side effect of the Trump on steroids. Right. Feeling really good. He's not just feeling good. I mean, he's the only person in the United States who feels better while he has COVID than he felt when he didn't have COVID. And there's a reason for that. Donald Trump and every American should understand this. If you go into the hospital with COVID at the level he had it and you want treatment, you're not going to get the kind of treatment he got at Walter Reed. I mean, I'm not saying that this treatment will save him from the effects of COVID. And I'm not talking about fatal effects. I'm talking about the long-term effects of COVID and how dangerous it is and debilitating. But he got the best possible, most advanced treatments. I mean, I was looking at what he was getting and thinking, they better be careful. They're giving him everything at the same time. And I think that could be dangerous, but I know nothing. And I figured they knew that the drugs could work together, but you're not going to get so many great drugs that make you feel better and fix it somewhat for you when you go into the hospital. And you might not even get to go into the hospital, even if you feel you need to go into the hospitals. So, Let's get political. As you say, Trump is receiving the best and the most expensive medical care in the world because he's president. And we would want any president to get the best medical care. But at the same time, Trump is trying to take away the medical insurance of tens of millions of Americans who are covered by Obamacare and the tens of millions more who are protected in getting private insurance by the Obamacare rules that they can't be kicked off for pre-existing conditions. So this to me is the outrage of what is going on in America, that the president is getting the best medical care while he's trying to deprive millions of other people of any medical care. And it's worse than that because he hasn't taken the disease seriously and yet we all can get it and a lot of us have it more than have been killed, which is 209,000 people in this country alone. So he's trying to take away your health care while denying that one of the main threats to your health is this virus, which he now has. And he just doesn't care about the people who support him. That's the thing that kills me. He wants his voters to dismiss the idea of COVID. Well, (laughs) they may not be able to vote for him because they're too sick because he's told them not to be afraid of this virus. And they know that they should be afraid, but they're all sucked into this sort of braggadocio, hyper-masculine thing that makes me into a snowflake because I wear a mask. Okay, my mask is very femme, so maybe I am a snowflake. <laughs> but, um, and makes you, who don't wear it, and make yourself vulnerable to the virus, a tough guy. Well, you're not tough if you get this virus. Oh, and one more thing, by the way, who pays for the care he gets at Walter Reed? I'm curious. Is that taxpayer dollars? Oh, yeah. And so I'm interested in that a man who paid 
$750 in 2016 and $750 in 2017 as his entire income tax is getting paid for hundreds of thousands of dollars medical care by the taxpayer. That's not fair. And healthcare is the center, the, the very center of political equality. And Trump is not for your health care. It, it's a disaster, really. And when I think about it, I get too upset and I can't even speak anymore, which I know you won't believe. Amy Willens, her piece, Trump Thought He'd Never Get It, is up now at theatlantic.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, Jim. What is to be done at this point about voting and vote suppression in the November election? Ari Berman is our man on voting rights. He's a former senior contributing editor for The Nation. He wrote the definitive book on the subject. It's called Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. His writing has appeared in The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian, as well as The Nation. And he's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. He's currently senior reporter at Mother Jones. In a recent conversation at thenation.com with the magazine's publisher and editorial director, Katrina Vandenhuvel, before Trump was hospitalized for COVID-19, Katrina asked about what the Supreme Court might do if we had a Republican challenge like Bush v. Gore in Florida in 2000, but this time in many states. That's one reason why they want Amy Coney Barrett on there so badly because I think they know there's a good chance Donald Trump loses. There's a good chance they know Mitch McConnell loses and they want the court to try to nullify um, everything the Democrats have done. I will say that I do think that all of Trump's comments about the Supreme Court deciding the election, it's, it sets a very scary precedent. I also think it's gonna make it harder for the justices to actually do that. Like in Florida, it was more of a silent coup, right? I mean, people were not aware of the possibility of the Supreme Court deciding the election. Maybe they were aware at some point during the recount, but it wasn't like months before the election were saying, you know what's gonna happen? It's gonna be 537 votes in Florida and the Supreme Court's gonna stop the counting and declare George W. Bush the winner. But everyone's aware of that possibility now. And so I, I think I'm not putting anything past this court. This is the court, as you mentioned, that gutted the Voting Rights Act, that upheld the Muslim ban, that has done all sorts of terrible things. But I think this would be way, way, way worse than Bush v. Gore, given what's happening. And I think it would be the biggest constitutional crisis in this country's history if the Supreme Court were to once again decide the election, this time in favor of Trump. Then Ari was asked if he thought the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party were prepared to deal with Trump's plans to steal the election. I will say they've been very aggressive in filing litigation, much, much, much more aggressive than in 2016. They have a much bigger voter protection effort than in 2016. Many more people are aware of these efforts now. You have national figures like Stacey Abrams that are embedding voter suppression, sorry, they're embedding voter protection teams with all of the state Democratic Party. So like in Wisconsin during the primaries, they did a phenomenal job helping people vote and helping people cast absentee ballots. And when I, you know, I talked to Ben Wickler, the, the, the Democratic Party chair there, he basically said that what they're trying to do is, you know, they, they, they went from trying to convince people to vote to helping people vote. And I think that that's the difference this year. 
there's less focus on persuasion and more focus on getting your own voters to have their ballots count. So I think this is, this is the Democratic Party is a lot more organized than they were before, but they don't control all the levers of power. They don't control the Supreme Court. They don't control the presidency. They don't control the Senate. And they don't control many, if not all, of the key swing states in terms of the state legislature. So there's a lot of opportunity for Republicans to screw around here. Um, and the closer the election is, the better the chances are that they screw around with it. If it's an overwhelming election, if Joe Biden wins Arizona and North Carolina and Florida and maybe Ohio and maybe Iowa, it's gonna be very, very difficult to overturn the will of the voters. If it's 270 electoral votes that he wins and it's within 500 votes in Pennsylvania, um, I would start getting a little bit nervous in that situation. And what about recent... <clears throat> And what about recent court decisions on voting rights going to the Supreme Court before the election? There's a very good chance of it reaching the Supreme Court before the election because the Republicans are already appealing all of these decisions. So there's actually been a number of good decisions um, recently uh, in the courts. For example, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, in all three states, if your ballot is postmarked by election day, or in the case of Michigan, the day before, your ballot can arrive after election day. Meaning if you're concerned about things like post office delays, you now have more time for your ballot to be counted. And that's one of the main reasons why ballots are thrown out. It's because they arrive too late. And so this can really help mitigate that. But of course, the Republican Party and Trump are appealing all of these rulings um, to the Supreme Court um, in, in Wisconsin and in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan. I will say there was just a decision in Wisconsin by three geo-pointed judges who are very, very conservative judges. And they upheld a ruling that gave people more time to vote. So actually both Republicans and Democrats in the courts are, are making rulings, making it easier for people to vote. I would be surprised, although not shocked, <laughs> if the Supreme Court overruled all of these decisions. Um, but again, um, I'm not gonna predict what the court has done because they've done a number of terrible things on voting rights. So I don't wanna say that I'm super confident about it, but I will just say there's a long record in the lower courts of making voting easier, particularly because of the pandemic and giving people more time knowing this is an unprecedented situation we're in. Ari was asked about mail-in ballots that were rejected because of errors of missing information. Have Democratic Party attorneys been successful in pushing for ways for voters to correct problems on their mail-in ballots? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And that's one of the things that we're dealing with now. We saw a huge number of ballots rejected during the primaries because they either arrived too late or people didn't understand the rules or couldn't comply with them. So ballots arrived too late or people didn't have a witness signature in states that need it, or people didn't sign their ballots clearly enough or election officials didn't think the signature was clear enough or people didn't sign the ballots at all or people put it in the wrong envelope. I mean, there's so many rules with mail voting that again, I am just encouraging people, if you're overwhelmed by mail voting, you have the option to still vote in person. And what public health experts say is that voting in person is pretty much akin to going to the supermarket. There is some risk associated with it, but it's a, it's a relatively low risk um, for most people. So I just want people to know about that because I think people have gone so overboard with vote by mail, they've completely forgotten that there's still a whole nother option that in my opinion is much more likely to have your vote counted. So I'm not telling people how to vote, but I'm just saying if you have all these concerns about mail voting, know that there are still options in every single state for you to vote a different kind of way. Um, this is a thing we're seeing in North Carolina right now because North Carolina, over hundreds of thousands of people have already voted by mail. And there uh, was a, a 
fairly high rate of rejection initially, something like 4% of ballots were rejected, which is enough to swing a close election. But over time, there's a process to fix those ballots and the rejection rate has gone down to about 1%. So 1% is enough to swing a close election if many more Democrats are voting by mail and many more Democrats are having their votes invalidated. But we're also seeing that over time, those numbers are going down. And so I just think it's so important to understand the rules ahead of time. Uh, and that I just keep ma making this point because I, I just can't emphasize it enough that the earlier you do this, the better chance you have to fix whatever problems you have. It's gonna be very hard to fix problems with mail ballots three days before the election. I just wanna be honest with people. Um, it's a lot easier to fix them 34 days before the election. So if you're gonna vote by mail, you absolutely need to request your ballot now. Um, do not wait uh, a week before the election because it's gonna be very, very difficult both for it to arrive in time, um, but also to have it counted. What, what election officials are saying, what the post office is saying is request your ballots two weeks before the election, um, mail it back within a week before. I would say do it as early as possible because there's really no harm if your mind um, is made up. And then understand that a lot of states have a lengthy early voting period. New, New York, for example, has two weeks of early voting. Michigan right now, you can re request a mail ballot and vote at the same time in person at the polls. So essentially you're doing mail voting at the polls. Wisconsin's gonna have two weeks of early voting. Pennsylvania has early voting for the first time. Same kind of thing as Michigan. You can request a mail ballot and vote um, at the polls. Texas, a state where it's very hard to vote by mail, they're gonna have three weeks of early voting. And so in almost every key state that's gonna decide the presidency, it'll be A, easy to vote in person, meaning easy to get an absentee ballot, but B, there's gonna be options to vote early in almost all, if not, all of those states. And that's something that people should know about. On election night, Trump may be in the lead in some swing states where more Republicans vote in person and more Democrats vote by mail and the vote by mail ballots haven't been counted yet. Trump plans to claim victory at that point. Does this possibility mean Democrats should vote in person rather than voting by mail? So it really depends on the state. The Washington Post had a good breakdown of this this morning. Some states allow ballots to be processed right when they arrive, right? So if mail ballots arrive early, for example, in North Carolina, they're going to be processed earlier. Um, in some states, uh, they don't process the ballots, both in-person and mail ballots, until later. And then in other states, like in Wisconsin and in Michigan and Pennsylvania, where the deadline for ballots has been extended, meaning that your ballot can arrive if it's postmarked by election day after election day, that just means it's gonna take a little bit longer. And so I think we just have to reset um, all our expectations about this. In some states, we might know a winner on election night, but in other states, we almost certainly won't. It's very, very unlikely that we're gonna know the winner in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania because they have given people more time to vote. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that people have more time to vote. And it's just, it's far more important to be accurate than to be quick. And I think the media, particularly cable news, has a vital role to play in how they cover this. They really have to walk people through the process to understand that election night is gonna be like halftime in many states. It's not gonna be the end of the game and that there's a whole nother half left in terms of counting ballots. And Steve Kornacki and all of these numbers, John King, all these numbers guys, they need to really walk people through it and they need to have bipartisan secretaries of state on there on election night to understand and after the process. So we need the Republican secretary of state in Washington or in Kentucky or in Ohio to get on there and to explain to people and the Democratic secretary of state in Michigan and, and California other places, to explain to people how this process is going to work because Trump is absolutely 
going to try to prematurely declare victory. But he can't actually declare himself the winner of the election. I just, my big pet peeve here is don't give Trump any more power than he actually has. Don't give him powers that he doesn't actually possess. And so I just think we have to walk people through it. They need to understand the process. It's going to take longer this year. We're probably not going to know who the winner of the election is um, on November 3rd. And uh, that's just the reality. And we all just have to adjust to it. Ari Berman, in conversation with Katrina Vandenhuvel for The Nation, you can watch and or listen to their full conversation at thenation.com slash events. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.